Hello, my name is Christine Murray, Editor-in-Chief of The Developer, and welcome to The Developer Podcast, where we talk about how to design and develop cities worth living in, which often has to do with the spaces between the buildings, as much as the buildings themselves. In this podcast, we're taking you to the Urbanization Forum on Connectivity, hosted by the Swedish Chamber of Commerce at Google headquarters in King's Cross. On the panel are Jeffrey Palmer of Suico, Linda Thiel, Director of the London Studio of White Architecture, Simon Dixon, Global Transport Leader from Deloitte, and Ian Macbeth, Head of Foresight for Transport for London. A warm welcome to the Urbanization Forum of the Swedish Chamber of Commerce. Um, This is actually the sixth edition of this that we've put on, and we do this because we want to address some of the challenges facing um, cities today, and there's an urbanization trend which everyone needs to relate to. We have Swedish businesses who drive innovation in some sense, and the UK is really at the forefront of this as well. So a great platform for us to exchange ideas. I don't know if you know much about the Swedish Chamber of Commerce, but we've been here for 112 years, and we've been doing exactly this for 112 years. It hasn't always been this cool. It hasn't always been at Google, but um, still, we've been doing this for a very long time. Now, I have the pleasure of introducing the guy with the coolest title uh, of this evening. So apparently, um, Rob is Director of Knowledge and Communications at the Future Cities Catchable. So I'd love to know exactly what that means. But thank you very much from, um, from the Swedish Chamber of Commerce. Thank you so much for coming. And I really hope you enjoy the evening and do ask a lot of questions, because that's what the panels are here for. Thank you very much, Peter. Um, so I'm Rob Whitehead. Super excited to be here. Brilliant to see such a great turn out and be in such an amazing space. Maybe I should tell you a bit about me first. I'm, uh, as you mentioned, Peter, Director of Knowledge at uh, something called the Future Cities Catapult. Anyone here heard of, put your hand up if you heard of Future Cities Catapult. Have you heard of it only because of uh, the program? (laughs) I should caveat my questions. So we're a government-backed innovation agency. Our job is to help connect the kind of innovators uh, together with the ideas people and in Future Cities uh, case to uh, connect them to the kind of future buyers of innovations that are going to make our cities better. So very relevant to this topic, which is why we're so pleased to be involved with this uh, urbanization forum and the topic of connectivity is obviously plumb in line with everything we're interested in. My background is quite eclectic but kind of links to a lot of the things that we're here to talk about. I have been, in my time, involved in technology. I was involved in actually regenerating this area, which is why I'm so pleased to be here today. When I was head of strategy at London Development Agency, we helped collect this site together and master plan it and help these kind of buildings emerge to help London prosper and move to the next level. So it gives me intense pleasure to be here, uh, kind of using it today with all of you people, hopefully cooking up great new things for our tomorrows. How's it going to work today? So we've got a uh, absolutely jam-packed program full of fascinating people who are going to tell you, uh, who've got incredibly uh, diverse and interesting perspectives on our topic, connectivity, urbanization. You're going to hear about energy, you're going to hear about transport, you're going to hear about technology and much, much more. How it's going to work, as you've probably worked out if you looked at the program, is we've got six keynote speakers, end on end. And then we're going to bring them all back on stage and have uh, 20 minutes or so chance for you to ask them questions. Anyway, without further ado, I'm going to welcome, and maybe you can join me in the traditional way, and welcome to the stage, our first speaker tonight, 
Max Ryerson is chief exec uh, of a company called Stratforce. I'm going to leave it to the speakers to introduce themselves. They'll do it much better than I will. So if you could just welcome up to the stage uh, Max Ryerson. Thank you. Thank you very much, Rob. And uh, thank you for inviting me. And, and it's an honor to be here to talk to you tonight. Unfortunately, I, don't, I only have eight minutes. And this is a great topic, so I'm not going to talk about myself. Um, I'm here to talk about urban connectivity. Yes, but why? It's about data and user experience, of course. It's clear that um, moving people efficiently and being able to manage urban environments even more efficiently is the key to, or is the, is the key to successful future of cities around the world. By 2053. 75% of the world population will live in an urban center. That's 7.5 billion people. This means that the global urban population will have gone from 850 million in 1953 to 7.5 billion in 2053, an increase of 800, a little over 800% from 1953. Now, the significance of 1953 is because it represents a post-war era when major city concepts were established, such as airports and um, motorways and subways, and were adopted sort of globally. The, this is why urban connectivity um, is so vital in delivering truly seamless experiences across all city services for the myriads of people who interact with these environments on a daily basis. From connected systems, sensors, and telecommunication services, um, these will all be crucial in access to data and the ability to share data um, in real time at scale in order to deliver these experiences. The more we automate systems, uh, the, uh, and we automate systems that are there to handle end user uh, interactions, the infrastructure systems will need to be able to access and analyze data from millions of touch points in real time. We need to start thinking about our urban centers as digital ecosystems, micro and macrocosms. Urban connectivity is about a connected future, a future full of smart experiences and smart environments, from the retail store space to the comforts of your home each microcosm forming the greater macrocosm of the smart urban center. Our infrastructure, therefore, needs to keep up and evolve to create a new efficiency model that is driven by demand, not capability supply, where it's about optimization and anticipation, not about moving trains to schedule, for example, but about finding the optimal way to move people around. And Elon Musk's boring company is aiming to achieve this. Or it's a power grid uh, that is built to capacity, which really only occurs 20% of the time, that needs to become a power grid that is the source of power commodity, with buildings contributing to the power generation instead of simply consuming them. And for that, we need to put people, um, space, and purpose in focus. Business processes and application processes are generally uh, systemic steps in managing business information or events. 
and they tend to be focused on capability silos. In reality, there are higher order patterns um, that traditionally or typically are user journeys or situational sequences, and they're called metaprocesses. A person traveling to work each day is a user journey connected to numerous um, underlying system processes such as ticketing, uh, planning, scheduling, and operations. A heat wave, for example, is a situational sequence that is linked to business systems such as uh, power generation, uh, public transport, and health. Metaprocesses, therefore, allow us to uh, draw together these capabilities in separate domains in order to orientate them around people and purpose. Consider a person going to work. So they pull out their device and they interact with their immersive digital environments such as Siri or Alexa or Google Assistant. And they say, traveling to work, uh, leaving now. At that point, the meta process layer, uh, management layer, is able to uh, book the travel um, and update the public network, tra trans uh, network, the public transport network, and then also inform the destination building that somebody will be arriving in 30 minutes. The traditional domain core systems then have the ability to work on a demand premise. So public network uh, transport, uh, public transport networks can now allocate resources. Uh, the transport and um, building management system can now anticipate and inform the demand for power. Uh, building management systems can also anticipate the demand uh, and inform systems such as water and, uh, and waste. But energy, public transport, uh, parking, maintenance, waste management, uh, emergency services, and law and order can all be optimized with access to real-time data uh, and the right infrastructure for a world that will be 75% urban. We've already seen shopping centers use data to optimize parking, and we've seen cities like Boston use crowdsourcing to uh, manage road maintenance issues. But as the, as the urban uh, environment becomes more and more connected, uh, cybersecurity becomes more and more crucial. So connected vehicles, lifts, um, air conditioning systems, uh, you know, life support systems, public transport, or public services all become a potential target. And it's rare that a week goes by without a major data breach being reported. So Facebook um, in September, uh, or sorry, last month actually, announced a data breach that affected 30 million users. British Airways in September announced a data breach that affected 380,000 customers' payment details. Equifax last year reported data breach affecting 146 million people, and that was 99 million addresses, 209,000 payment uh, card details, 38,000 driver's licenses, and 3,200 passports. Um, or even, you know, famously Target that affected 110 million people's uh, payment details. But it's also companies like Uber and Yahoo and eBay and Deloitte and JP Morgan that are announcing. Uh, major data breaches. So the ability to collect vast and rich amounts of data um, and be able to move it safely everywhere at the speed of light is a crucial backbone to any city of the future. And digital connectivity will power urban experience.
And in so doing, data will enable uh, systems to predict demand and fluctuate in real time. The interconnectivity of all urban systems and services will create great efficiencies and great experiences for people who use this space. That is why urban connectivity is imperative to our future. Thank you very much. My name is Max Rarson, and you can reach me. Ten seconds over. <laughs> Thanks, Max. Brilliant, brilliantly kept the time. Thank you very much. I'm going to retrieve my little uh, yellow box. So our next speaker, if you could quickly welcome up, is John Simpson from Google. Thank you. Uh, good evening, hi everyone. Um, yeah, so John Simpson from Google. Um, I'm a technical lead manager. Um, I'm, I'm part of the strategy team that really looks at our smart building uh, infrastructure. Um, I'm quite happy to welcome you to Google. This is actually my home office, and uh, it's a pretty cool space. Um, my my keynote today really is going to uh, um, really look at um, what we can share with you from our smart building. Uh, work to date and how that translates into more urban cities and urban environments connected cities. Because I think it's interesting when you see some of the parallels and some of the things that we can share from our experience. So one of the things that we wanted to look at was what is a smart city to you or to us. Um, we spent a lot of time looking at our internal environment and when we start to think about some of those user journeys that we talk about and end-to-end -end connectivity and the, the Googler who wakes up in the morning and comes to office, the office and how's their experience. So we started to really think about um, what that means to us as well. And we have a similar set of slides for what is a smart building to us. So we really look at things like convenience. And um, that could be wayfinding. I think we touched on automation, um, a frictionless experience for people. Collaboration, and, and we're really big into, obviously, collaboration. Um, thinking about social interaction, serendipity of events, um, the flexibility and adaptability of cities, is, is we think, is key. Um, environment, you know, and energy efficiency of systems, um, the sustainability of those systems, and the economic benefit that you can derive uh, from those is, is really critical. Um, and security, and safety and security are underpin all of this. Um, you really have to get security right from the ground up. It can't be an afterthought. You have to do something um, uh, uh, intrinsic within your design which allows for that. Um, and you know, we talk about IoT, um, and we talk about things like anomaly detection, yeah? like when something isn't working, you know, something's been hacked, how you actually respond to that and detect it. So we, we see you know, smart city really as an IoT solution, an IoT solution in a building, in a home, um, in a city. Um, there's three key challenges that we've, we've identified. Um, the first one really being standards. Standards underpin uh, everything we do, um, all the devices that we have, the way this building works, the way our environment works is really driven by standards. And we need those in play to make uh, a lot of what we we're going to talk about today possible. Um, security. So security really is, is top of the agenda for us. Um, it has to be there. You know, I, I use the term DNA. It has to be part of your DNA. You can't add this on. Um, and then scale. Um, I think when we talk about Google, we talk about our buildings, we work at scale. Um, when we talk as an organization, we work at scale. And then we talk about the, the wider environment. So scale for us um, is a challenge. You have to underpin that with standards uh, and security. If you don't do that, you're going to fail. Um, and it's, it's really going to be a problem. 
So I wanted to sort of share a little bit about how we approach buildings, because buildings um, can be uh, seen in silos form. And I think if you think about how a lot of real estate works um, and how a lot of traditional buildings are built, they follow a very siloed approach to systems. What we've really tried to do and derive is a much more horizontal approach. Um, and this is really, really keen for this to become an industry norm because it really benefits us where we want to work. Um, and, as, and you know, when we're talking with the wider construction industry, we don't want to have the same conversation again and again. So we really start from devices. And devices are the industry standard level. So if we're all playing from the, the same seeing from the same hymn sheet, you know, same playing field. Um, those standards drive security, drive connectivity, uh, and drive all the upper layers that you need to actually make some of this stuff work. Um, we then talk about connectivity, and I work in networks, so I'm really keen on converged networks. Um, you need to make this, this work. Um, and we talk about um, a very standardized layer for things to connect. Um, and that typically is driven by IP in our experience, and we, again, we're seeing that um, evolution in buildings. And then I think we talk about data, and data's key here. You know, um, I think when we think about what we're trying to do, we're trying to make good use of that data, make intelligent decisions based upon things that are happening, and make, take action. So data for us is key, things like data lake. Um, and then we talk about the application layer, all the things that you can do in your environment. Um, when you think about it, we want to abstract those applications from the devices. So, that's what, how we approach buildings. When we think about it at a city level, there's a couple of extra things for us to consider, and we've, we've had a look at this. Certainly, the infrastructure stays the same. The base infrastructure, base standards need to be very, very similar. The idea of connectivity in that environment, and a side hobby of cellular, um, I'm a SME within Google. Again, it's a key area of how you connect devices. Public realm, public spaces, kind of new to us, actually. And we have to consider how we interact, um, not just as a building and buildings, but how we actually interact. So I think we talk about that and how we play a part in that ecosystem. Um, and then digital layer. So digital layer being um, things like data lake, things like applications. They need to sit on top of these, these layers to make it work. And just a little bit of insight. So I'll give you a, a little sneak peek of what we've kind of thought about and, uh, you know, sort of drawn out of our experience over, over the years. Um, we certainly see a, a learning and skills gap across the industry. Um, we're having to do a lot of education, and really we want to, the, the industry to um, become um, self-supporting. So the ability for people to understand uh, a lot of IT in when it comes over to buildings and construction. Um, and we see a lot of that industry knowledge and, and lack of. Um, open source, so we talk about, we're very open. Um, data is key here, that data like I talked about. Accessibility to that, standardization and security. It has to be very secure if you're collecting all that data. You have to be underpinning it with security. Um, common connectivity. So again, I think we, we talk about connectivity both in a data sense, so allowing uh, data to flow, um, but also you know, the technology underpinning it. And we've driven a lot of our uh, initiatives around IP. And, and trying to make sure that's a standard, standardized approach um, for Google. And we hope we're trying to make sure that systems adopt that going forward. Um, again, security, sorry to come bring it back again, but that's really critical here. Um, we've seen examples, you know, there are very well-known examples of systems being compromised. Um, we have to take that very seriously. It has to be something that we 
um, enforce from the outset, um, and I would always stress people to do that. And then the last but not least is, is testing infrastructure, and this really drives that standardization. If you can get manufacturers and industry partners to test that standardized level, you're able to trust what's coming in from a data perspective. You're able to connect things securely. So actually testing infrastructure is a really common one we weren't expecting, but we actually really done a lot of work in that space to try and, again, standardize that across the industry, um, get people to understand why you would want to test to a common standard, um, which would then allow you to start layering up. Because until you get that, actually, until you get that piece, um, there's a lot of um, manual effort involved, and you can't automate, and you can't scale. So that's really one of our key lessons that we weren't expecting, and we bumped into. And that's me on time. So, so, so I, was, uh, I had someone around in my house the other day who um, was giving me a quote on installing some solar panels. And she's standing outside my house, and she shows me on her phone. She says, look, look, here's a local installation. I can show you the energy usage of a, of a solar panel installation just around the corner. And I looked at it, and I was like, oh, it said oh, 8 o'clock. It was a graph of energy usage. It was my brother's house. Right? This woman was showing me when my brother had had a shower that morning. Weird. How many of you, hands up, has got an IoT device, like a kind of Nest home, something like that, a connected fridge, anything like that? Got anything like that at home? OK. Very good. Right. We're going to hear next from Jeffrey Palmer, Director of Buildings at Sweco. Welcome, Jeffrey, please. So thank you, John. I'd like, to, I'd like to think that our buildings are designed to be connected, that our buildings are open sourced in their protocol. What I'd like you to do is walk you for a journey. I'm a building designer, I'm a building engineer, but I'm also uh, a part of a steering group with Sweco for our Urban Insights programme. And I'd like to talk to you about how everything is connected, really. Because for me, it is. It's about everything being connected. It's about everybody in our industry, whether it's technology, whether it's buildings, whether it's transport, whether it's energy. It's all of these things coming together to understand each other if we want to make better urban environments and better experiences for people. So what we really need to do is go from traffic-centric spaces to people-centric spaces. And I'll give you one of my favourite experiences. One of my favourite experiences is coming into this King's Cross site. When I walk up um, the Euston Road or walk up Gray's Inn Road and turn the corner and walk into this site, it is like urban countryside. It is like I feel like I'm walking into a Disney film with this little Tweety bird flying off my shoulder because the world's burdens, and I've rushed to get here because I'm late, and the world's burdens lift off of my shoulder. And when we look round London, you know, the walkthrough between the two halves of the Bloomberg building at Cannon Street, the Novo development at Victoria, the um, stuff at Moor London, that's been finished for eight years now, the stuff at Moor London, south of Tower Bridge. These are fantastic spaces, and they're fantastic because they put people at the centre. We've taken the cars and transport and flipped them over. But the connected thing is really interesting. Because it's not just about our transport networks. So our transport networks need to understand they're there for the people. The people that need to move around our cities to get to work, to get to home. The transport networks need to respond to the needs of our people. And they need to be connected in a natural and intuitive way. It's about our utilities. 
You know, um, if we look at utilities, we need to move away from gas. This summer, there was a one-hour period where 50% of all of the electricity in this country was generated from renewables. Now, we need to stop putting gases, gas into houses and homes and start using electricity. So we've got to be really smart with our electricity grid. As all of these people move into our cities, we've got to be really, really clever. Use what we need to, bring those numbers down, but then share and move energy and electricity around. The same with water, you know, and the same with flooding and drainage. It's all connected. We need to think about vehicles. Our vehicles are often empty or completely overcrowded. Our vehicles are often polluting. Our vehicles are often significant energy users. And our vehicles, unfortunately, are often delayed. Now, how do we move forward? So Royal Mail looked at replacing their 49,000 vehicles with electric vehicles, but they stopped because they thought the infrastructure burden wouldn't work because they weren't connected to everybody else. They weren't thinking about sharing. They have got nine trial electric vehicles running around London successfully at the moment. Buildings and spaces. Now, for me, the spaces between buildings have now taken on a prominence, which I'm sure we'll hear more about. But the buildings themselves need to adapt. You know, it's not about two showers. It's not about hiding the staircases so that people start their personal journey and then queue up for a lift because they can't find the natural way around. You know, bring the staircases to the front. Think about where people really enter the buildings. Think about the natural flow past the building when you design your front doors. These things are really, really important. And if we just go back to those electric vehicles, those nine electric vehicles, if we take a typical building this size and replace the traditional fluorescent lights with LED lights, that will save about four watts a square metre. This building's about 20,000 square metres, I know, because I designed it. That is about 800,000 watts. Over a 10-hour period, that's 800 kilowatts. Now, you know those lovely Tesla cars? The one with the big numbers on the back, the P100? That's a 100-kilowatt-hour car. So you've just generated, by lighting change in this building, enough spare power to charge up from flat 10 large Tesla cars. So it's about joining these things up. And technology has its part to play. Technology knows my needs. It knows what I'm doing today if I allow it to. It knows and it anticipates. It can think. And if, if I allow it to share, I'll give you a good example. If I allow it to share, I should be able to um, share my electricity for others, borrow a bit from somebody else. And then when something goes wrong and my wife phones me and says, oh, you really need to come home, one of the kids is sick, as I take my smartphone down, I press emergency charge, and as I'm walking downstairs, I've stolen all of the charge from your car and your car and your car, instantly charge my car in 30 seconds, and I can get in and drive home. It wasn't expecting me to drive home, but that lift journey down with the right connectivity allows me that flexibility. So we mustn't think about cars as we move forwards as um, just modes of transport. These cars, as we move forward, are portable power storage. Yes, we'll move to hydrogen. We'll only have water dripping out the back, but we're not there already for that yet. But as the batteries come in, they're portable storage. They're mobile storage devices. And if we're clever, if we're joined up and we allow everything to work, we don't need additional power. So for me, it's all connected. Better urban environment require better buildings that understand about the transport around them. 
smarter infrastructure networks that understand the people's needs and use. Technology, so we can come to work in slightly different ways in slightly different times. Use of our urban spaces as natural wayfinding. You know, when we find a nice big open space, it's so easy to understand north, south, east, west, to naturally um, look for other waypoints and other points. And these things are really important. So for me, it's about all of us as designers working together and understanding the needs of others. Some of the most exciting buildings that I've done are where design teams come together with customers and others in um, the same space to really think about what moves on and what's better. So the final piece, which is food for thought, is take a look at what we've done. So this year for Sweco, we've produced um, seven insight reports on urban move, which talked about different ways of moving around cities and spaces. We've done an all-electric journey across Europe, which was quite challenging. We've looked at some of the leftover spaces in cities and how we can regenerate them and how through Europe they are being regenerated. Next year, the theme moves on from Urban Move to Urban Spark, where we look at energy, infrastructures, and how we can move forward. So I think, I hope you agree with me that whatever line of work you're in, it's all connected. Think outside of the box and think how the work that you do affects others, and together we can make a better urban environment that's people-centric and ready for tomorrow. Thank you. Jeffrey, excellent. Uh, eventually, everything connects. Can I have another show of hands? Um, who came here in a car of some kind? Put your hand up. Bloody hell. Two. Two. How many of you are planning to go home, assuming you're going home afterwards, uh, to go home in a private car, in a car of some kind? Just two again? Okay, that's <laughs> There's a link, there's a link, there's a pattern. Uh, very interesting. Okay. Um, right, we're going to move on to our fourth speaker now. So, uh, please welcome to the stage Linda Thiel, Director of London Studio of White Architecture. I'm not going to do the Swedish variant. Maybe you can try that. Yeah. But um, welcome, <coughs> Linda. Thanks. So, yeah, hi. I'm um, running our London office, uh, White, Architect White Architecture. Lots of Swedes here today. Um, we're a really large Swedish practice, and I think... The benefits of running a small practice here of 10 people, uh, given that we're 900 in Sweden, is that we can be really hands-on in projects, but we can also really benefit from all the research that our colleagues are doing in Sweden. I think just generally architects, um, we are, I mean, our role, obviously, like any other's role, uh, change over time. I think what we do, we're problem solvers. We always have to unravel a lot of information and turn it into a built environment and places for people to to live and be, see if this works. Okay. So I think the, um, obviously, as everybody's talking about here today, the um, continued urbanization puts the demands on the well-connected uh, places and cities. I think, how do we create robust and resilient places for the futures that also meet the human needs? I think that's really putting the people and the person at the center of the, of the um, projects that we do. Obviously, things change. We need to understand how we can use these structures in the future. Um, I think all we know that we will use different types of transport. Um, I think connectivity is so many different things. Um, so it's a bit strange. I hear myself when I'm speaking. It's a bit strange. 
Um, but I think how can we use smart technology to take on a more holistic approach and how can we actually try to envision how we're going to use um, all of our built environment and public places in the future. And also something that we've been discussing in the context of the panelists today is how can we do this within the current planning systems that we have to deal with. As we know, change, things change fast and how can we plan for the future within our current systems. Um, we always talk about a livable city and what makes a city livable, uh, not the least in this uh, densification uh, that we are dealing with at the moment. Uh, and how are they connected and how we know that people move where they have to move. They move to places for love, for work, for all different kinds of reasons. And how can we make those places come together and actually work for everybody? Um, we also have a history of really establishing really well-connected places, but that also unfortunately have been in Sweden and other countries, uh, sort of satellite suburbs. Uh, that even if they're well connected with transportation and digital uh, aspects, um, they're also quite segregated because people uh, live in their uh, clusters. And I think this is also something that we have to deal with. With uh, enhanced connectivity, we always have to deal with how can we create a really inclusive and uh, democratic uh, place. And I think it's really about what makes a place being um, sort of enable people to trust and to respect each other. I think that's really important. So um, I'd say an inclusive city is where citizens feel good. Um, it's not only about getting to point A and B really efficiently. It's uh, all of these things that we've talked about here today obviously should work and needs to be working. Um, but it's also how can we create this um, dense, places and transportation hubs that also are uh, looking at the people in them. So a few things. These are really old style connectivity strategies from architects, urban designer roles. Um, we talk about shared streets um, where for all different kinds of transport. We always focus on city at eye level. It's what we actually see when we move around in a city. It's all about where everything that's in between the buildings. Um, obviously, not just connected digitally or with public transport. It's about knitting together and stitching together the grids and the urban fabric that we have. With higher density, we also need to define the public and private space and really invest in the uh, parks, pocket parks, shared spaces that we all use together and making sure that those green, the green network is connected. Um, we tend to talk about how far do you get in five minutes? Uh, designing with um, the walkability at focus uh, because every five minutes it's really nice to feel that you have a safe spot or somewhere to sit or somewhere to meet someone so you don't have to walk uh, across a huge park in darkness for more than uh, that time. So it's all about stitching together. I have to try to do my notes, I have to do it on time. Um, I think these, just running through a few illustrations about how we look at these things. And, and this showing sort of the light blurbs in this one is identifying places connected and, and what they can bring in as different identity to an, an urban design. And also on a more 
local context. What different kinds of means of wayfinding can we use in these different routes walking through a townscape um, sort of urban place? And how do you feel that these different places give you something back? And how can we actually stitch together an urban context, uh, like this is a project in Stockholm, which currently looks like this. It's lots of bridges coming into the south end of Stockholm. And it's uh, growing, um, sort of developing around it. But this is a really tricky part with lots of different levels. Um, but it's all about with buildings. Obviously, we do buildings because then we get the finance to f get the money into the public realm. But it's how do you walk in this context? And what happens at the first uh, two floors in these buildings? Then you can always bump up the density, as we said. Maybe that's not rocket science. Um, it's also about areas where we have these sort of slightly suburban, quite big roads. They're not really well used compared to the other uh, city, uh, sort of road image I had. And how can this then be densified? I think because then you can bring places together uh, instead of having them as satellites. Uh, it's also the co-creation and the power of uh, the collective. Obviously, all these new digital tools gives us as architects also a really good beneficial way to interact with our end users. Um, and obviously, we use old means as well. But this really enables people to reflect on what these new places can um, mean to them. Uh, and I think... It's that digital end of it, but it's also engaging with people uh, out in the public. And what place will these young children grow up in uh, when, in 30 years? And how can we, with quite small means, transform these uh, places to make, make them better connected and for people to use them? And how do we actually fill in the gaps in between? And how playful can we make it for people to actually use it and activate it? Um, and I think the key here is we know that everything will change. I think the power of culture is that it's so embedded in our different cultures. And that's something that changed slowly. So I think from an architect's point of view is how do we deal with this fast transformation that's happening? And how do we actually try to embed that into the culture that we live in? Uh, and it's really to enable the cohabitation between tech and human nature. And just as a final slide, um, creating robust and resilient places. Some of the greatest places we have are really old. And I, these designers, when they designed this square, they had no idea how it was going to use today. And I think we can't always anticipate how space is going to be used, but we have to make them as robust and, and, and sort of future-proof as possible. And also not be too precious about our designs. I think we need to allow people to, when, as soon as they take them in use, they have to take ownership over these places as well. Thank you. Thanks very much, Linda. Thanks very much, Linda. Um, connectivity is lots of different things. I'm just wondering, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands on this one, but. One of the things I've reflected on recently is uh, the smartphone in my pocket stops me talking to people. Um, when was the last time you had a kind of random, serendipitous conversation with someone you didn't know on public transport or a flight? Oh, hands are going up anyway. I didn't ask for hands, but there we go. That was recently then, yeah? Very good.
Anyway, uh, we're going to move swiftly on. Our next speaker is Simon Dixon, who is Global Transportation Leader at Deloitte. Um, thank you very much, Simon. Thank you. I'm going to rattle through these slides. All these slides are going to be available afterwards, so um, I just want to introduce and stimulate a few ideas for the questions. So um, this is something about the City Mobility Index, which we designed and put together to try and measure how cities are using transportation, because as lots of other speakers have said, our cities are going to strain to keep cope with where we're going, uh, with the rapid urbanization, the population growth. So how does mobility help cities uh, be better? So um, across the world, you've got the future of mobility, which isn't just about the autonomous vehicles. It's about seamless, connected, multimodal mobility. And it's how that integrates with the smart city. And I wanted to see whether we can link those two key trends. So we have developed uh, an index. At the moment, we've got 53 cities. And you can see the ones uh, around. The blue just meant they were the pilot, and the green were the second phase. And the idea is we've got a good global spread of cities. And we will uh, refresh this index every year. So the aim is to see what works, what trends. So i.e., you know, let's say that uh, Helsinki's been investing in moving from a hub-and-spoke transit system into more an, a network. How's that actually worked? And, uh, and is that city, is, is Helsinki relevant for us? So that's what the index is. What does it look like? Well, each city is summarized in a two-page document, which sort of says a bit about the city, some of the uh, statistics. It's very much not a, an academic sort of, uh, we're not going to argue whether something is 75.7 or 75.6, but these are trends. Uh, and it's also looking at where we think the city sits on the future mobility in a part of summary. I think the key thing is the little URL at the bottom. There's a website you can go in and you can compare and contrast cities. Now, what the press would love me to say is which is the best city and which is the worst. And I won't and I can't because they're all different. There's no point, you know. Amsterdam, 61% of its journeys are by active transport, walking and cycling. Absolutely brilliant, but it's as flat as a pancake. And the weather's not bad. If you're in Dubai or Riyadh in the summer, you're not going to cycle. It's plus 50. So compare like with like. And you can look, and there's a click and, uh, click and compare aspect of the, of the website. You can say, well, all of the cities are the same medium density, high GDP. Um, let's look at who is the best on public transport reliability. So you can do at that level of comparison. But really what I wanted to talk about was what were the sort of findings, the sort of six initial findings when we looked at the cities in the first, uh, first wave when we launched the index, which was launched in the summer. So I think um, what's past is prologue, which is a good Shakespeare quote. Um, but every city is different. They're, they're subject from their past. Cities that grew up before the car you know, have a very different layout than something like LA, which grew up with the car. Now, it doesn't mean you're stuck in the past, but you've got to take account of the past. And the authorities can actually do things differently. And a lot of the facts, the innovation, which we've heard about a lot, can overcome some of the historical legacies. You're not stuck in the past. So the next one was actually the role of the government. The government needs to get the basics right. It's really simple things, because if you've got a city network, but your traffic lights don't work, or people don't actually obey the rules of the road, which happens in some parts of India and the Middle East, you know you're going to have congestion, even if you've got low car usage. Make sure it's safe. People won't use public transport if they don't feel safe on it. That's not safe because it's just going to stay on the rails or not crash, but they're not going to get mugged. 
Um, I think this is probably, out of all the six, my key point, and it's something we, a lot of connectivity integration. Integration is so important in our cities. And that's integration uh, in a number of varieties. So that's between the public and the private sector integration. The integration between the center of the cities and the suburbs. Um, the integration with the regulators and operators. Because if you get that connectivity, the number of transit authorities, I would say London is brilliant because we've got TfL, take New York, where you've got a few more. You've got MTA, bridges and tunnels, port authorities. It makes it more difficult to get things done. But if you have got that integration, well, then it makes it easier to join up the timetabling, the ticketing, the payment systems, all those things that make it easier and seamless for us. Uh, the next one, which is an interesting finding, actually, I found. I mean, I, I, helped, uh, I helped TfL put congestion uh, charging into London back in, in 2003, which made me very popular at dinner parties in southwest London. Um, I think it's brilliant. Um, but actually, this congestion is a problem everywhere. And it's not just in America where we sort of saw everyone drives a car. But in Europe, that's because some of our streets. And if you look what TfL have been doing is taking away, deliberately taking some road space away to create dedicated uh, cycle superhighways, that then causes uh, congestion because our cities aren't big enough in Europe. And then in, in the sort of uh, developing world, it's more the fact, as I said, maybe the infrastructure's poor, uh, the designs and everything um, don't work. But congestion is a problem, and there's a huge causal link with air quality issues, which are becoming ever more important. Um, the next one, and I get accused of being, you know, the congestion charging, hey, Simon, you hate cars, you're anti-car. Anti actually, I'm a bit of a closet petrol head, which actually, when I did a talk in China, doesn't translate very well, I realized. Um, <laughs> But cars do have a role. You can't build public transit systems everywhere in your cities. And cars play a real role. But it's the integration, where they play, and probably the first mile, last mile, is what we want to do. Because actually, you want to be using that, that shared transport, maybe in the future autonomous, taking people from the homes to the transit hubs in the efficient movement, and, and the regulation. So cars really do have a role in our integrated seamless transport. And the last one is work with the local culture. Because Singapore, everyone says, oh, Simon, Singapore is absolutely fantastic. Well, yes, it is. But Singapore is a very different culture. It's a command and control. You drop chewing gum on the street, you go to jail. They say something happens, it does. You know, you try that in Atlanta and you get a different response. You've got to work with the culture, work with the local climate, the cultures. And transport planners need to understand the localities of it. So really, in this uh, whistle stop, my last slide is what can cities do to try and remake uh, the um, mobility landscape and get that lovely thing about the economic benefits of moving goods and people efficiently around your cities and the social economic benefit of not having ghettos where people you know, are stuck so they can get from where they live to where they're employed, educated, and get health care. So integration produces better rewards, which I've talked about. Make the technology work. There's so much at the moment you can do to try and utilize our systems. Because as someone else said, they're pretty crowded in the peak, but they're not. So how do you spread the load, for example? Identify the right spending. So it's, it's not just spending billions pouring concrete and building steel. It's doing it smarter. Uh, I would say this, but I think the, the demand management side, the use of price to change behavior in cities and look at a different way of funding is kind of important. And lastly, and I think this, uh, and I sit in our public sector practice, I think it's really important, is the role of the government is changing. It used to be in the past the government operated everything and told you what you could do and what you can't do. I think now 
the governments, the authorities need to be the sort of catalyst, the strategy, setting the vision and then starting things up and letting that mix of public and private sector. And someone talked about cybersecurity. You've got to set the standards for it. So really, that's my amazingly quick canter through what I think is a fascinating topic of mobility. Uh, and thank you very much. And I'm looking forward to our discussion later. Brilliant. Thank you, Simon. Uh, it's great. Just reflecting on your um, uh, responses about cars, uh, Enrique Peñalosa, mayor of Bogota, you may have come across him, he says, uh, in an advanced city, the middle class uh, use public transport. Margaret Thatcher will be turning in her grave at this, if you, if you remember what she said about bus travel. Um, and she'll probably be turning in her grave about a few other things as well. Um, and it's great to have people in the room that have been involved in making this work, you know, um, from congestion charging uh, to, you know, making it all uh, assemble uh, and the building, etc. And so last but not least, that leads me on to our, our final speaker, who is uh, Ian Macbeth, who is head of foresight at TfL, another very important part of the whole jigsaw in what I think we can say is a pretty successful city in these terms in London. So if we can welcome him to the stage, thank you. Thanks, Rob. Um, head of Foresight, uh, you'll f look in vain on our HR system for a Head of Foresight, because my boss said, my CV, my job description kind of looks a bit boring, so let's make something up. So that's what we made up. Um, it is not the best job title in this room. I know there are one or two even better ones. I'm not going to mention who. Um, but I work in the Innovation Directorate at TfL. Again, that's quite British. If you go to LA, they have the Department of Extraordinary Innovation. <laughs> We're British, it does the job. So um, I kind of thought we probably discussed a lot of the, of the challenges facing London with the previous speakers. And, and Simon's done a really good job for TfL, so I can stop and finish now. But um, this is the population challenge that's facing London. 8.8 .8 million people um, at the moment. We're predicting population growth to rise to about 10 million by 2030. Put that into perspective, that's two new tube trains of people coming to live in London every single week. Um, we're not far short of the population of Sweden, actually, I suspect. What does that mean? Yeah, it gets really busy out there. It's congestion, and we're having to deal with that. And you know what we do. We look after buses, we look after tubes, we're a regulator, all those kind of things. But what this does mean is we have a challenge with air quality as well. And really, that's one of the, the key, key components of the mayor's transport strategy. Um, if you've not read the, the mayor's transport strategy, shame on you. Um, it's only 300 and something pages. Now, I kid you not, there is a short executive summary. Um, you can have a look at that. And those are the pillars that support the MTS, um, moving away mode shift, um, away from the car, using space efficiently, all the things we've heard about in terms of urban environment and those kind of things. Um, you are a dream audience because only two people put their hand up coming by car. Now, the MTS target is for 80% of all trips in London to be made by active travel and, and other, those kind of modes of public transport by 2041. Well, quite clearly, we've cracked it. <laughs> so what do we do next? Well, OK, um, bit of foresight. We have some of the most congested airspace in, London, in the world. It's the busiest, it's the most restricted. 
And those are the kind of touch points that we think of in aviation in a city of today. These are the traditional ways that aviation interacts with the urban environment. They're called airports, places like City Airport, Heathrow, those kind of things. We all feel quite comfortable, the fact that we've got aircraft flying over our head. That's because they're really safe. Aviation safety um, uh, targets are really from one accident or incident, 10 to the minus 9. I don't even know how many zeros that is. I can't even look at it. But we feel safe about that. But things are changing. And what we're seeing is drones, urban air mobility. And you see that's a little bit in the past, 2016, because that's when TfL first started using drones, um, when we were start building the tunnels for the soon-to-be-opened Elizabeth Line. Um, this year, um, the Met Metropolitan Police have been running drone operational trials, operational activity, beyond visual line of sight. So these are drones that you can't just look, see yourself. They're going around corners. They're not visible to the operator. We're using those tactically at the moment. Don't hold it to this timeline. It's a guess. But we're already beginning to see people looking at deliveries of goods and services by drones. Amazon have already done trials and things. We're seeing deliveries of blood samples and things like that in Switzerland. And there's loads of stuff going on in Africa and loads of other places. Moving forward, we're seeing the electrification of traditional helicopters. And our people are knocking on London's doors to say, when can we start to demonstrate EV toll type vehicles? Maybe 10 years away, it could be a lot less. And because a lot of the technology in there is very similar to autonomous vehicles. I'm not going to talk about autonomous cars and stuff today, because quite clearly you don't need them. Um, but we have trialled some of this stuff already. This is Nesta, uh, National Endowment for Science, Technology and the Arts. We ran a programme um, beginning of this year, uh, five, other, five cities across the UK, looking at the use applications for UAVs and drones. Um, we picked a really good day to try and do our photo shoot. Anybody remember the RES 100th fly past, anniversary fly past? Oops. Um, guess where that is? Right opposite Houses of Parliament. Kind of a bit of a tricky place. But we managed to get the permission from the CAA, and that was a demonstration of how we might use drones to cut journey time between hospitals for blood samples, organ transplants, those kind of things. So kind of the beneficial use cases, what might drones do for the public good in the city? Because let's face it, drones have not necessarily got a good reputation in some minds. I won't mention prisons. Um, so these are the kind of categories of drones we're looking at. This is what EASA, the European Aviation Safety Agency, are kind of beginning to look at. Open category, these are the hobby drones that everybody buys. As my um, colleague knows, first time you try and fly it outside, it ends up in a tree and all families up the ladder trying to pick it out of the bush. Um, not that dissimilar to, to a bicycle. You don't need insurance. You can, there's certain things you can do. Specified is what we're talking about, asset management, talking about tall buildings, working at height, huge efficiencies in construction, um, data acquisition, all these kind of things, and, and dare I say it, flying pizzas. Um, and then certified category at the end there, um, that's really about where we're starting to talk about flying taxis. Now, we're not going to see flying taxis anytime soon in London, but the technology is developing. And if you look at the investment that's going into this industry globally, it is in the billions. So it's not a question of if, it's a question of when. And that kind of has a challenge for TfL because that looks at what is the airspace used for, and that's really what might be happening in the future. Now, TfL do not have any powers in the air. That belongs to the CAA. 
And I cannot believe that any mayor in any urban environment is not going to want to have a say about what is operating within the city. If there are drones operating outside your window, you're going to want to know about them, who's operating them, what the regulation sits like. So that's a challenge for TfL. And what we're looking at is looking preparing a framework for urban air mobility going forward, the regulation of that low altitude urban space, the regulation of the services, control of built infrastructure. That's really important because as a planner, and I know Victoria knows a huge amount more about this than I ever will do, um, built infrastructure and planning is a huge part of this. You look in a London plan, you look in a mass transport strategy, you look in any planning document, you will find, look in vain for the word drone or urban air mobility. And then there's the environmental impact. What does the noise sound, sound like? We don't know. There's a whole pile of unknowns about this new technology that really we need to understand before we feel comfortable that we can let this loose in London. We always like a nice picture of the future, don't we? Well, this is actually the first time that TfL went to the Farnborough Air Show and I stood up on stage with Airbus and Rolls-Royce and somebody came up with a blank checkbook and said, can I buy one of these? Well, they haven't even built one yet. There's a market for it. Um, you might look in the background and think, oh, that's some nice imagery. I wonder who supplied that to Aston Martin. Um, but this isn't new. Um, one last slide. There we go. Um, this was commissioned nearly 100 years ago. Our forebears were thinking about urban air mobility in London. There we go. They hadn't cracked air quality. There were still boats on the river, um, but we did have urban air mobility. Thank you. Thank you very much, Ian. Uh, fantastic. So we've done our six uh, brilliant presentations. Everyone's kept to time. All is good. Magically, chairs are appearing behind, which means we're moving seamlessly to the Q&A session. While, while we just get that in place, I'm going to ask you a couple more questions. Uh, right. I want to see this is a... Oh, the noise changes a bit if I walk this way. Should I be doing this? Go back, go back. I'm told to go back. Reverse. Okay. Hands up if you've had a parcel delivered this week. Very good. Hands up if you've had a par more than one parcel delivered this week. Bloody hell. Hands up if you had a parcel delivered today. Busy out there on those streets. Okay, hands up if you've had today an interaction with someone internationally by email, message, phone. Wow. Wow. This is, uh, well, this links to what... what? <laughs> Amazing. Right, how are we doing? Oh, we've got six chairs, like magic. So if I could invite our six presenters to come and take one of the six chairs, please. There is one for each of you. It's not a game. Uh, thank you very much. And I'm going to find my yellow box. Where's it gone? Right. Okay. Now, we've got some time for questions from you guys. We've had um, uh, a kind of view across a bunch of different perspectives on this very big, and you can tell just from the range of presentations we've had today, the, the kind of breadth of the topic around urbanization and connectivity. But I'm sure you're bursting with questions. Uh, you may get this thrown at you if you put your hand up, but don't let that deter you. So, right, who's got a question for our panel? Come on. Don't be shy. Oh, there's one over there. Oh, am I nearest with the box? Right, right I'm going to throw this. You're going to throw this to the guy behind you. Please. Can you introduce who you are? Yeah, I'm Pat Hayes from B First. I just had a, a really question for the 
the two transport guys, actually, because I was surprised to see the car and by sort of extension, probably the taxi still featuring because that seemed to be the most redundant form of connectivity for a modern urban area, particularly actually for last and first mile journeys, which presumably are much more easily done by sustainable means of transport. I can see out in the countryside you might want to use it, but it seems we're still very much fixated on a very outdated mode of transport. And even on the TfL slide, I don't actually have a car and a taxi and taxi in an urban environment, totally nonsensical, surely. <laughs> Who'd like to comment on that? Simon? I'll start. I think, as I said, it's multimodal because, you know, the, the, where the cars, where the taxis are, because don't forget, not everyone can, you know, use active transport, walking and cycling if you're elderly or more infirm. So you've still got to cater for all aspects of society. I think it'll move away from the one person, one vehicle into more shared. The fact that, you know, some places in America you've got, I think it's uh, Lyft, you know, but the, the sort of dynamic bus, shuttle bus routing, things like that. It may not be taxis. In, in New South Wales, in, in Australia, they're using school buses uh, which aren't used after the, the morning drop-off and even pick-up to use to connect people to take them from their homes to health centres for the elderly. So it's using all different sorts of vehicles, but I do think there will be a need for some sort of car because you, you can't walk everywhere with the climates. Uh, not everyone can, and you can't get public transport, mass transit, uh, out to everywhere. So I do think you've got that last mile connectivity and the, the role of a, a vehicle, probably on wheels because the flexibility is still going to have a role. What it's powered by, you know, how it's driven is up to, up to debate, but I, I do think there will still be a role. I'm probably going to be proved totally wrong, but you know. Do you, do you, want, do you want to quickly come in, Ian? Very quickly. I mean, yes, we, do, we don't see that there is a need for a car in central London. The, the yeah. public transit op options are, are fantastic, and people here demonstrated that today by just their hands. Um, out of London, it's a little bit different, and public transit is, is, is not as, as uh, frequent as perhaps you'd like. But I'd say this, we're in a transition period. Um, we're moving towards electric vehicles, but we're also moving towards automation. Now, maybe there will never be full automation, but at some point in the future, what's the difference between an autonomous private car, autonomous car share vehicle, yeah. an autonomous taxi, or even, dare I say, an autonomous bus? Because we're going to have to yeah. reset what our definition of public transit is at some point in the future. Those small vehicles will have a place, we'll have mass transit for central London, but there will be a change. Great. I think there's another question emerging from the front. No? Yes. yes. Can we get the mic to the person in the front? Throw the box. Throw the box. <laughs> Whey. Yeah. Hi. Um, a question to Linda. Um, as an architect, um, I know that, well, I'm not an architect, but <laughs> you as an architect, I wanted your view on, on the trends. Um, knowing that the Nordic countries have been leaders in smart and urban uh, design and, and created some beautiful buildings in Copenhagen, Norway, uh, Oslo and, and Stockholm. What do you think, who do you think are the leaders now globally in, in smart and urban and sustainable building design? Who drives the trend? Oh my god, that's quite a question. Um, I think, I do think that the Scandinavian countries are at the forefront. Uh, I do also think that some of the most um, Obviously, you would have China. I think that I mean, I think they are really pushing the boundaries in in the way they do. Um, I also think that maybe um, in areas of the world where you have a more challenged climate change, 
Um, I think that's probably where you can, I mean, we can see in Australia, you have some brilliant buildings, they're super high tech and, and they really live and breathe with the people that use them. Uh, so I think it, you have hubs all across the world. It's really difficult to see who's at the absolute forefront. I think it's just, you can just see this is just emerging from everywhere, which is really good because it needs to happen. Hmm? <laughs> <laughs> Hit the box. Hit it. <laughs> it worked. Go on. Do you, as, as architects, uh, you, you work in different countries. Do you, do you have like a cooperation hub where you take lessons from one another because different climates, different landscapes, flat as pancake or just curious about how yeah. that cooperation works. I mean, of course, I think it's, it's a very collaborative um, community mm. across designers. I mean, not just architects, but designers in the built environment. Uh, lots of research going on. I think particularly with us within White, we invest a lot of money every year into research in different strands. And our researchers obviously connect with universities and other practice leaders across the world. So I think it is, I do think that we can drive open source um, more than we do. Uh, I think there's lots of knowledge that can be shared, shared more openly uh, because it's all for a communal sort of, we all do this together. Great. Um, right, let's uh, get some more questions. There was a couple over here. Can we, uh, maybe to the, the gentleman in the stripy blue shirt. Yeah, it's you, yep. Catch the box. Three. Wow. Right. Do I do anything? Bye. Um, I think my question's for Ian, and it's about um, aviation and energy consumption. Um, kind of over the last 30 years, many people would say it's the growth of international petroleum-powered air travel that's really blown the carbon situation. So I'm twitchy to hear more things flying around in our wonderful city, um, even though I think it would be kind of cool. Um, I'm probably way behind the times in terms of the energy conversation, but it would be nice to have some reassurance. Okay, Ian, energy flying, yeah. bad idea? Um, well, it's kind of needed, I suppose, um, unless you can flap your, like that. Um, no, I'm being a bit flippant there. Um, <laughs> aviation has got some traditional touch points around a city, and, um, you know, TfL is not something TfL has traditionally been involved with. Yes, we provide surface access to, to airports and things like that. Um, but what this new urban air mobility can do, it changes the city and it becomes, the whole city becomes a touch point. Um, and that's a, that's a key point. Um, now, in that environment, what we're looking at is what are the environmental impacts What's the safety impacts on the city? So we have to be absolutely clear on that. Now, we're moving towards a zero carbon city. We've got targets for 2050 or earlier if we can. Um, our predication is that these, this new mobility, if it comes to pass, should be zero carbon. It should be quiet. It shouldn't um, be um, emitting uh, carbon and things like that. We fully expect that commercial aviation should go there over time. I think they've got a bit further to go. And a key point is that the city do doesn't have control over its airspace at the moment. If we have control over our airspace going forward, and we need to work that out with the CEA and work in partnership with them, but that gives us a much, much more clear direction and authority about what we can have in the skies above us. Um, Matt, Matt, sorry, go on. Sorry. I was just going to say, the um, you know, if you want to free up, it, think of the whole lot, because there's so many 
causes congestion and air quality issues, a delivery of, of parcels, stores, shopping. If you can move some of that delivery into the air from the drones, as Ian said, that frees up the city space streets for walking, uh, more cycling, it makes it easier because you're spreading the load. At the moment, we're all concentrated on two dimensions, and now you're introducing a third. So I think that potentially could uh, decrease the energy budget. Does, um, I'm just going to just, Jeffrey, you talked about the kind of energy dynamic uh, and also Max as a strategist. Do, do you have any views about emerging transport forms, what it means for the future city and how that interacts it's, it's with the energy just, system? I was just thinking about one of the earlier questions and many of us now walk into a building and the, the lifts have got destination control. So they sequence themselves optimally depending on where you want to go. So we group people together and deliver them. And I'm just thinking that you know, when when we use the third dimension, when we use this dimension and we look at grouping things, we can then absolutely optimise the routing that we take to deliver three parcels. We're constricted at the moment by how we deliver those three parcels, by our blocked off streets that we've pedestrianised, by the whole urban nature. So if we start using this third dimension and if we start using... I mean, I love the story of the buses being used out of time, but if we start using the fact that we know where we are and we want to get to and allow the city to decide the best way to do it. Yeah, yeah. You know, so there's loads of you want to go roughly from here to here. So here's a nice big bus. Two minutes and your big bus picks you all up, drops you here. And as we get there, the next layer is there ready for you to do it. And maybe these buses have got drones hidden underneath. So 90% of their journey. And then it's just the last man, the walk into the front door. And so yeah. I think, I think power is going to be a real issue because it takes an awful lot of power to get something in the air. It takes zero power to travel down the canal. You've reminded me that in economists, uh, it's all economics terms, the most efficient urban transport ever invented is the elevator. Uh, let's take some more questions down here. We've got a couple of uh, chaps over here. If you just pass along, that'd be great. Thanks. Hi, um, so my question is really about the strategy that's currently being uh, used in the UK to, to try and improve city areas in terms of you know congestion and, and reducing car usage. Because obviously there's these fantastic services, um, mobility as a service, mm. services like WIM that are coming out that are being used um, in our cities increasingly. Um, however, it appears that uh, Kind of the, the area that we're kind of weak on at the moment is looking at the the problem caused by the suburban areas. You know, where in by 2026 there's supposed to be a 30 plus 30 plus percent rise in people owning uh, more than one car um, getting to the actual city. Now, surely the the next uh, focus for us must be on actually trying to improve ways for people to actually get to the city so they don't need to use car transport. Who'd like to pick that up? <laughs> it's, the, it's the magic formula that, you know, in some ways London's cracked of getting lots of people into a place without having to rely on these very inefficient, collectively inefficient modes. But I think just, I mean, some things is obviously creating really mixed-use environments. So, you, I mean, people will need to travel because you can't always yeah, get um, your work to be where you live. But I think also if we can stitch these satellite servers, to, servers together with the city, then the way through there could potentially allow for workplace so you don't have to travel as far. 
Yeah, I mean, the, the thing is, so for example, every year since 2010, bus usage has dropped by 2% uh, because of congestion caused by the increase in cars. Um, and I'm just thinking if there's going to be increased number of cars in cities because of people traveling in from suburban areas, it's just you, you can do amazing things in cities, but people are going to still need to get into the city. I, I sense Ian uh, wants to jump in. Um, well, actually, if you go outside today, um, outside this building now, there aren't that many private cars about. Mm. Um, I think what people tend to overlook is the impact, and everybody put their hands up about parcels, is the impact on logistics. Mm -hmm. um, logistics is absolutely key for a city to, to function. We've not really talked about that today. Um, and perhaps other panels are better qualified than I am on this, but we really need to understand about how social demographics are changing the makeup of this society. Mm -hmm. our, our social trends are driving different behaviours and things like that. So, mm -hmm. so, so don't forget logistics, because every time you build a new high-rise block, that puts pressure on servicing that particular building. And there is many congestion caused by logistics and blockages in the road because people are delivering goods at the side of the road, whether it's pubs or you know, pharmaceuticals or whatever it may be. But congestion is, 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 is equally down to this massive warehouse on wheels that is driving around London and probably not paying its fair share or dues in terms of its use of the road space. Mm. I, I think, think the use of price I would say this, and I'm not a politician it. because it's probably a, it's a, it's a courageous, but you know, humans respond to price quite quickly. If you look at the congestion price, the look at what happened when the government incentivized diesel usage, it went up. So I think the demand management by using price in cities in and out in the suburbs is actually going to be part of the mix in shaping behavior. Yeah, uh, because I don't think we can just rely consumer, on people. The consumer doesn't need everything tomorrow. If I order six things on Amazon, I tick the box at the bottom saying, deliver this in one go. Does it come in one go? Sure. It doesn't. And so, I, think, I think, you know, you can buy Amazon Prime, so everything is delivered tomorrow. So that is hundreds of thousands of individual tiny journeys. If I order six CDs, or whatever they are nowadays, and they come six, six individual... What's six, a CD? Six individual things. <laughs> and and, but unfortunately, vinyl's, vinyl's back, so yeah. you can't... So I'm just wondering, John, as a kind of technologist and Max as a, as a strategist, do, what, what's your sense, um, you know, um, the challenges of uh, kind of new vehicle usage... Um, and uh, the dy you know, you, you both kind of gave us sort of prisms for thinking about these problems and thinking about them differently and coming up with slightly untraditional routes through. Uh, do you, how would you kind of get us through the forest of managing not just drones but you know microelectric vehicles and extra congestion? Where, where, where do we go with that? I think, from from my perspective, when you when you think about a lot of these challenges, they're they're underpinned actually what we talked about by data. And if mm. you think about some of the uh, the really interesting stuff that's going on machine learning and AI, when you start knitting that together with decision-making, your six parcels or mm -hmm. ten parcels, you can start to gain real um, traction. Yeah. You know, we've, we've got some good examples where just by applying machine learning to energy usage within data centers, you can have dramatic impact, which human influence wasn't getting. You know, and, and the inference between decision-making is not seen by a human brain, but can be within systems and data. And, and, who, so, and, who, and who owns this brain? You know, if there is a brain for managing the city, in, like where does that control of that sit? Where yeah. should it sit? I don't know if anyone has a kind of view on where that goes, because you know, clearly lots of people are vying to have control of that sort of intelligent level. 
Well, I think there's, um, from my perspective, there's obviously lots of ways you can do it. Um, obviously, multiple companies have product, or, you know, work in that space. Um, but you're talking about public and private clouds, yeah. So you can, you've got the ability to go access that um, compute power to do that uh, and the tools to do that. Yeah. So you, you, it's actually a, a problem you can um, at least address if you think about it from that perspective. And I said, we've got some case studies where we've shown that publicly that you can do that. Great. I think we've got time for maybe one or two quick questions. If you go to the, yeah, by the box, and then we'll come to you at the end if we've got time. Keep it quick if you can. Thanks. I, I have a simple, um, if contrarian, question. I, I'd like to ask each of the panelists to reflect on what is privacy? What does that mean within the emergent cities that you were describing? So maybe not all six, because okay. it's quite tricky. <laughs> we've got 60 seconds, and I want to fit one more question in. Who, who'd like to go on privacy? and uh, address the question. Uh, I'm seeing eyes going to our uh, Google representative. <laughs> um, that would probably be a tricky one for me to actually answer. I'm probably not allowed to answer that one. <laughs> uh, hey, controversial. Max. Yeah, sure. Um, you know, I think, I think privacy, especially um, in the world that we currently live in, and GDPR, and, you know, yeah, and, and Facebook, and, and all these issues, I think privacy is what you make it. And I think you, know, you can share as much information as you want, and you can decide whether or not sharing that information gives you back benefits. And I think you know, that'll be you know, especially personally identifiable information about yourself. But I think there's a lot of anonymous uh, data that you know, companies or organizations or governments can collect that do not really uh, step over your privacy to be able to deliver some of these services that we've talked about today in a very efficient manner. Brilliant. Uh, we have no seconds left, but I am going to go one more question at the back. I think it was someone just about there. Um, if you can give it really quick, and if this was question time, I'd have you queued up to ask the comedy question at the end. So feel free to interject comedy. If not, don't worry about it. Go for it. <laughs> no pressure. Um, my name is Christine Murray. I'm from The Developer. I wanted to ask Ian about um, Uber put about four, uh, the estimated 40,000 more cars on the road. CityMapper has its kind of bus service. Um, this privatization of public transport, how do you interact, deal, see it going? Go on. In a, in a, in a sentence or two. In even. a sentence or two. So, yes, obviously we're aware of the, the demand response of transit that's, that's emerging. People like Chariton, CityMapper, um, TfL um, are going to trial our own services. Um, we're going to explore that. Um, and we see that as a way of actually supplementing uh, our transport services. So adding extra patronage and feeding that in that last mile journey we talked about in the past. So we feel, see it's a development that potentially we could harness, um, and we're going to look at it. In the second half of the Urbanization Forum, we hear from Araceli Camargo, Lab Director of Centric Lab, Victoria Hills Chief Executive of the Royal Town Planning Institute, Dr. Stephen Lorimer from Smart London Strategy at the Greater London Authority. These are reflecting on the comments in the previous panel. So we, we're on kind of... Uh, short time now so I'm going to go to each of you just to if you could sort of in turn introduce yourselves and kind of what's your angle on this topic and what's your you know three two three reflections on what you've heard so far if that's not too much of a challenge to do in a couple of minutes should we start with Victoria uh, yeah, pleasure. I wouldn't take any time introducing myself because you've got all of that in your in your brochures tonight. Um, but just to reflect where the planning uh, fraternity, if you like, come into this. Uh, rapid urbanisation has been mentioned tonight already at a global scale. It, uh, population growth is going to continue, we think, in London. 
And that means that um, more and more people are going to be living closer and closer together. And we already know we have an infrastructure deficit. So you need to think about how we can design places for people in a smarter way that can enable them to live the lives they want to live in a happy way, um, but doing it more efficiently. And we, by the way, think rapid urbanisation is a good thing. If we all lived a lot closer together, um, then perhaps we need to travel less. Um, but it's not just about travel. It's about um, wider benefits. It's about health benefits. People feel happier if um, they get to see other people, less lonely. Um, they can probably travel around in a bit of a healthier way um, because it's easier to walk and cycle if they can. Um, but there's also economic benefits, agglomeration, um, et cetera, and, um, and environmental benefits. So infrastructure deficit, places for people. Um, but one of my observations in this is we need to bring people around the table together more. There are two worlds um, currently in this dimension. Somebody just referred to public and private. I think it was the, the guy from Google. And uh, my observation, particularly having attended uh, a CLG-hosted roundtable today to talk about digital disruption in housing, is there's lots of innovation, really great things coming through from the private sector, and there's a whole other world over here in the public sector um, that's responsible with regulating this stuff. And I think uh, we were asked today by the CLG, what do you need from us, government? And what I said is, you, we need to have some leadership, some really clear parameters set, um, some clear sort of lines in the sand, this is what you want, and then the innovators will deliver it. Um, but at the moment, there's a bit of a vacuum as to what it is um, they really want. They say they want innovation, but they're not really clear about what that means. And we've heard some of the questions here tonight. You know, what, what, what does privacy mean, uh, for example, within that context? So bringing people together. Um, I know I've only got two minutes, so I'll share other observations, shall Great. I, as, as we go forward. Thank you. Thanks, Victoria. I should have said that I'm extremely blessed uh, because uh, I'm in very good company here. Not least because Future Cities Catapult, where I work, has good, good links and relationships with all three of these marvellous people. Uh, I think this is more than just coincidence. Uh, we've signed an MOU of cooperation with RTPI today. We're, I work closely with Stephen you know, weekly on matters around London. And Araceli uh, has been a close friend of, of the Catapult on doing things around neuroscience in the city, which is both, I mean, all three areas of work have been very important to us. And I look forward to all of it in the future. Um, I don't want to take up any more time. Uh, Stephen, uh, we heard about leadership there. Can you describe a bit your role? Uh, your kind of linchpin of the smart London uh, move, if you like. Um, I know you've just come back from Barcelona and got yeah. lots of plaudits. Uh, maybe you can tell us a bit about what, what, what you're up to and your reflections on what you've heard. Yeah, I'm a glutton for punishment because I just came in from the, bar, uh, from the Smart City Expo in Barcelona the last couple of days and uh, signed up to go on yet another panel as soon as I get back to London, of course. Um, so I actually have a lot of touch points onto a lot of the topics I've ever spoken about today on architecture as well as data and connectivity and, and transport as well, uh, because I originally was an urban designer and I still pay my, my fees to the RTPI every, every year. And, uh, and, and, and actually a lot of the work that I was doing is how do you design to bring in the technology industry into cities as a real estate economic development employee? And uh, for example, trying to bring MIT into Dublin was one, one project that I was working on uh, as, as a forerunner of one of the co-working spaces that, that exists there now and how they worked with the Guinness estate to be able to make that happen. The big institutions kind of had to wrestle with each other to be able to uh, realize that site and really change that area of the city for, for the better. Um, 
And just, but I've, I've delved further, further away from, from uh, doing pure urban design and got more interest in technology from those projects. And I decided, wait, wait a second, I'm doing these projects and civil engineers are coming around saying, people are dying from, uh, and so you need to change the design because you need to put up lots of guard railing makes the place horribly, horribly ugly. And then the, um, the quantity surveyors came around saying, we have lots of data about return on investment. So change, get rid of that glazing, get around the windows, change the design. And I was left saying, well, I'm talking about the good qualities of urban design, but I have nothing to really combat that with quantitatively. So I said, well, I'll just go and join them and join academia and be a, be a data scientist and learn, learn all about it. And that's how I eventually found myself uh, inside of City Hall, uh, working on things such as what the Smart London Roadmap that we released last June, which is the mayor's new smart city strategy. And essentially what we went from, we went from thinking about in the Boris Johnson administration, and I was there at the end of it, uh, uh, thinking about it as something that we're integrating city systems. And I know that feels like I'm picking a bit on Simon from, uh, from Deloitte over there, uh, because one of his points was about integration, but really shifting on something which is about being responsive to citizens, being connected uh, to them and connect them to each other, and most of all being collaborative as something which is uh, almost like this, uh, something attached to being connected. And I can, I'll talk a lot more about that at the same time, because we have not one smart city, but 33 smart cities. And, uh, and, and any big key, any big things that came from what you saw today uh, that really jumped out as, yes, that matters for London. Yes, we, we need to do more there. Um, any any sort of reflections on on what we've heard? Uh, I was thinking first when when Max came on and said that we really need a, a model which is led by demand and and really not about the capability and supply that's out there. Uh, we talk a lot about. What is the question, you know, the, instead of what is the solution being pitched to us hmm. on one end of things? And of course, from those of us who work in government, increasing our capability to meet the massive demand uh, from all corn, uh, from both civil society, from citizens, from businesses, to be able to facilitate the solutions that, that enable London to be a smart city is hugely, hugely important. Correct. So one, one line from the first speaker. Correct. Aracelli, I, I'm, you're like me, wilting in the heat up here. Um, so, I mean, this is a sort of city perspective and a perspective from the, the uh, surveyor and town planner kind of profession, if you like. You, you are a completely different angle. You do groundbreaking work on what neuroscience can teach us about cities and how we can help make cities better using neuroscience. Can you tell us a bit more about your perspective, your angle, and what you've heard today? Uh, yeah, sure. So my angle is the human. That's what I do. I look, I study humans and I try to figure out how to make healthier habitat, habitats for humans. So um, yeah, I've got four quick points. Um, the first one is I think we need to look at data from a different perspective. Data is there to interface between the built environment and people. That is what data is there to do. Give us more information about people so we can understand how to make more informed decisions about the human need. Um, and it is allowing us, or it will allow us to do, to communicate with something that at the moment is inanimate and make it more animate. But we have to be more conscientious of why we are connecting, sorry, why we're collecting that data and for what application, which I only heard once from you. Um, uh, let's see, two. Um, 
I didn't hear anything about tackling the historical problems such as health inequality, access inequality, um, and how these connectivities are also going to exasperate um, those things. So who is connecting is my question, and why are they connecting, and who is being left out of this connection, because that will surely exasperate inequality. Um, three. Um, how can we use this data to understand how a person is perceiving, understanding, and experiencing city, city elements? So the first person that spoke, um, they, you, or actually all of them, we imagine these amazing futuristic scenarios, but we don't imagine one where the human is in the middle. So instead of imagining how we get our parcel quicker and how we get our Uber faster as we're coming out the door, um, I'm going to throw it back at you guys. How many people either know, have, or have a child who is on the autistic spectrum disorder? That is going to continue to increase. So my question is, is how do we make that person's life better? At the moment, they, when they interact with the built environment, it can be a very chaotic, very confusing element to connect with. So what if there was an element inside the home as a sensor that understood that that person's anxiety level was extra high that day? And then there is an extra building work that wasn't there the day before or the week before that allows them to now make mitigations about their life, whether maybe they find another transport link, maybe they connect them to another human being that allows them to come to their home, that allows them to have a, a better connection with the built environment. I, today, I do need a carer because I'm, I'm gonna, this building works is gonna be too chaotic, too noisy for me to tackle on my own. So those are the scenarios that I think we can tackle, we should tackle. Brilliant. Um, one more, sorry. Well, let's let's <laughs> um, squeeze some time for questions. <laughs> so my last one is about the unintended human consequence. So when the question was posed about drones, we said, okay, so drones will stop the congestion at the bottom, but then what does that do? What's the unintended human consequence, the ecological consequence? What are we doing already to nature? Because that could disrupt and, con and continue to put us in a much more, um, and into a less biological world on top of, again, the, the anxiety that is being driven. Again, how many of you know and or have anxiety, depression issues, or know somebody, because I don't want to out anybody? Well, that's going to be most people, surely. Exactly. So what is that going to do? Because our brain doesn't switch off. It doesn't, even if we're not aware of it, data continues to be processed, and we're loading the brain yet again with more stimuli that is not necessarily um, necessary, which then can have, again, gross effects in our navigation, and again, for people that are in the neurodiverse um, spectrum. Thank you very much. Three different views uh, on a very wide topic. Thank you. Um, we've got time for a few more questions. Uh, let me see hands for questions. There's one at the back. He went up for, is it a man at the back? Can't see, sorry. Gender in specific uh, individual at the back. Hi there, yeah. Yeah. my name's Charles Critchell. Um, just Hello. follows on from Araceli's comment. Um, as we all know, cities are growing um, and um, they're obviously very broad demographic as well. Um, we're all talking about this abundance of technology which is going to come into play, but how do we ensure that everyone has the tools they need to really access this and make the, make the most of it? Um, and who, if anybody, should be helping people with that? Okay, how do we make sure this is inclusive in a, in a word? Stephen, you look primed. Well, I, I am primed because one, one big thing that's happening in London is that the national government is devolving the budget for adult uh, skills. Uh, to, the, to the mayor, and we're gearing up right now to ask the question, what do we do with all this money? 
and what does that mean for digital skills? So there's, a, so for example, there's something called the adult education budget that we're they're making decisions about right now about how do we enhance the basic digital skills of those who actually want to be using city services and how do we orient it towards being able to have the best access to public services, especially those who have uh, multiple needs and multiple touch points within social services. So it enables us to be able to personalize it for, for those. We don't necessarily need to personalize things like Amazon to the general population, but we do need to be able to do it for those who have many different touch points on the housing, uh, adult social care, and other parts of uh, other parts of boroughs and housing associations and national government, uh, and that's one thing that we're also looking on together is all the councils in England uh, that we signed something called the Local Digital Declaration, that asks basic questions such as uh, how do we actually make sure that somebody knows that they're eligible for multiple things at the same time, and how do we actually use digital technology to solve those kinds of problems that happened again and again. Very good. Victoria, got any views on, uh, building on what Aricelli uh, was talking about as well, on how we make this agenda work in an inclusive way? Well, I think it's, um, you've got to have open and honest conversations about what the, what the, agenda, what the agenda is and, and where things are going and how you, actually, um, how you actually practically ensure that everybody's part of it. I don't have, I don't have the answers for that, but what I do know is that it, it can be a big enabler at bringing in the people who aren't currently part of the conversation into the conversation. So if you take planning, uh, for example, um, and if you look at specifically within that neighbourhood planning, the people who are often leading that conversation are quite a select demographic of the community. And I think um, the beauty of digital is it's going to enable us to m have a much broader conversation with a much wider range of people um, because it's much more accessible. Um, so I don't look at it as a challenge. I look at it as a, ma a major opportunity um, because um, often it's that silent majority who might be locked out of um, a job or somewhere decent to live um, that aren't actually part of the conversation. And I get fed up, as you can imagine, my role of NIMVs telling me um, they don't want any more homes, they don't want densification, um, because actually the people who are telling me that are the people that already own their homes and they don't want any change. Well, that may be right, your view, but let's broaden out the conversation and let's hear from the people that aren't currently part of the conversation. So I think to sort of flip the question a bit on um, its head, I don't see that as a challenge. I see this as a major opportunity to broaden the conversation and bring in the silent majority into the conversation. Um, and uh, that can only be a positive thing for society. Thank you. Right. Uh, I saw hands for questions. Yes, can we get the mic... Uh... Throw the box. Brilliant. Thank you. Um, I'm sort of wondering, still on the sort of connectivity planning here, uh, what would be the sort of the impact of remote interaction through technology on transportation? What's, uh, the, re what's the impact of remote interaction yeah. through technology on yeah. transportation yeah. specifically? What do you, you mean? Sort of, Is what? that like, do we well, need fewer? Basically having fits. sort of a WebEx meeting instead of meeting in, in, real, uh, in real life. Do you mean the impact on the city yes. fabric? Do the you fact mean that the you don't need to move. The, the fact that that technology might not uh, might result in the fact that you don't have to move around so much as uh, today. I'll, I'll have a first go if you don't mind, because I've got a vested interest in this. I'm a I'm a, I'm a 
planner, but actually my first love is transport. As a former head of transport for the mayor's office, um, it's something I care um, and have a genuine interest in. And I think one of the things that perhaps you might not have heard um, uh, TfL say, say quite as clearly as, as maybe I can now, because I don't work for um, the mayor any longer, is there has been a lot of disruption in mobility. Um, previously, when we got our sort of annual reports through on patronage growth on the underground and buses, every year, sure enough, fares and patronage goes up. And it, it really continued that way for many, many years. What we've seen in the last two or three years um, is people scratching their heads as to wh why is ridership on the underground going down? Um, where have the bus passengers gone? But this isn't just TfL, this is much broader. I speak to managing directors of railway companies and they can't figure out where their passengers have gone e either. Um, and all the projections they did, it's, it's, it's all sort of gone a bit skewed um, and uh, trying to figure out what's driving that. Now, some of it, what's driving it is what you've described. Um, because people are working in a much more agile way. Um, there are a whole set of reasons um, for why that's happening. But um, interestingly, if you look at government, um, they have actually led a lot of this agenda, Whitehall have, because they worked out that their estate is worth so much, perhaps they don't need quite so much of it if not everybody came into the centre of London every day. Uh, private sector have done um, the, the same. Um, um, some of the speakers on the stage working companies that um, have agile working um, and and I think there are huge benefits for productivity in this but people still do do need to come together um, for, for for some things so what do I think the impacts are of that um, I think as as I've just set out um, it's it's an evolving landscape actually because of projections we had for travel have been skewed by um, tech Techno technological innovation, not in the transport itself, but in the way that people lead their lives. Um, so I think it's quite an exciting time um, um, for, okay. for those people working in, in transport like yourself, because you've got to figure out what all this means um, going forward. And can I just come back, actually, because on this, um, you won't see the drones in any local plans. Actually, if you look in the old Oak and Park Royal local plan, you will find a policy um, <laughs> that I ensured was in there about landing um, uh, delivery vehicles on top of roofs because we were future-proofing it. Um, but um, I didn't stick around long enough to submit that one for an award, but uh, it could be the only one in the country that has it, but, it's, it, but right. it is in there. Thanks, Victoria. Any quick comments on that, Araceli or Stephen, on teleworking? So you're a much more better place than I am to, to say that, but one thing that uh, Sashi Vermos, the their CTO, did say one time is that is that actually the people want to interact just as often, but they're changing the way that they do it because they found that it's actually traveling for leisure and outside of working hours is the thing that actually Grove, drove a lot of the growth in TfL's uh, patronage for a lot for a long time, and so that uh, that might be one reason why uh, people are shifting the kind of their human interactions from different from one uh, time of the day to another. Very good point. Um, I, I'm going to take well maybe two last questions. We're over time. I sense maybe an appetite for a couple more minutes. Um, uh, Jeffrey, quick comment. Oh, we need the mic. We need the mic. Sorry. Yeah, it's just going to make a comment that having worked in buildings and urban infrastructure in my life, just yeah. suddenly a light bulb came out. That the way we're using our buildings is completely different. We used to have great big desk spaces. We used to spend the whole time doing all our tasks at our desks. Desk spaces are now really, really tiny. 
in all of our modern offices. The breakout spaces, the touchdown spaces, the stand-up spaces are really, really big. And the reason for that is that if we only need to be at a desk focused on a task, we can do it anywhere. Yep. And I think our urban infrastructure needs to be exactly the same way. So really dense populations of buildings freeing up space for those pleasurable interactions. And it's those pleasurable interactions in buildings or in our communities that puts a smile on our faces, makes us think differently and drives forward. I'm not going to ask for comment on that. No. Very good comment. Uh, human connectivity, I think, is the point, yes. not just digital connectivity. Can we take one last question at the back? A uh, woman in red, red, red sleeves anyway, sorry. Uh, and then we're going to call it a night. Oops. So last question. Keep it quick if you can. I will do. Um, I often schlep around the city with three kids, and it's actually not that easy to do. Recently, they redid my local station. Um, brand new lick of paint, uh, all redone, but still 27 steps. I just wanted to ask, when we're looking at uh, the city, who is it actually for, this new city? Who's the city for? Can I, can I come in and make a point, um, which is the reason I got into planning, actually, is because I read a book by a professor called Cla uh, Clara Greed, or called Women in Planning, and her point was exactly, I think, what you're alluding to, that the city was actually designed predominantly by men, um, and who would think about moving around the city in a certain way, not the way that you perhaps described it. Now, the world's moved on. People care. Um, men are far more involved in childcare than they would have been sort of 30, 40 years ago. Um, but the point is that we need to have a more representative uh, workforce, whether that be engineers, architects, surveyors, planners, who are actually designing that city, because it's only by having a really balanced, diverse team um, that you can actually answer that question, which is, who are we designing it for? Um, it's no direct criticism of, of men and the way they design cities. It's just that's the way that they would have looked at it. So I'm you know, involved in uh, planning, not directly in practice now, but I would have brought a, a certain lens to, to it because I would have seen things slightly differently. So for me, the answer is in having a, a, a diverse workforce that is a re representative as the community you're designing for. Stephen Arachelli? I couldn't agree more with that. And, and one of the things that we do in, in the data and digital technology side of things, which is arguably not designing things for diverse populations very successfully either, is that we're putting a lot of money into the digital talent program specifically to get women, girls, and ethnic minorities trained with the digital skills to get into the workforce, to be the ones to, uh, to, to be the creators, to be the network with the pe other people who are creators, to be the, be the alpha testers before it, it, gets, any, you know, it gets out of the box, um, and, and be able to uh, make London, you know, the center for technology and, and innovation in the most diverse way as possible for the most diverse population found anywhere in the world. This podcast has been brought to you by The Developer, produced by Simon Mercer, with music by Fortet. I'm Christine Murray, and you can reach me on Twitter at at TC Murray. For more podcasts, visit us at thedeveloper.live.